0: This is Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, it is increment 300, and this is Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. Today the subject will be how much more, which the Greek reads like this, P-O-S, long O, Paso... Malon, M-A-L-L, O-N. Passa, passo. Malon. How much more, known in the field of debate and judicial law as a fortiori. Passo, malon. We're going to Hebrews chapter nine. But before we do, we'll be hitting a couple of other passages in Hebrews. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And as is our custom, we present to you our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. We entrust our spirit to you, O God of doctrine, we commit our souls to you, a faithful creator, and we give our heart to you, Father, in order to be taught by you. We do all these things in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. How much more? We're going to start with the theological functional specialty of interpretation, which is probably the leading Theological functional specialty that we're employing in Hebrews, though we're employing all nine of them, perhaps even ten. The theological functional specialty, which we're concerned with today and always in our theological exegesis of Hebrews, is therefore called interpretation. And so, we're attempting to be obedient to the mandate of 2 Timothy 2.15, which the Greek text reads like this. Do your best to stand approved in the presence of God as a skilled worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly interpreting the word of truth. Correctly interpreting the word of truth. Hebrews is well within that category called the word of truth and requires great care in its interpretation moreover Hebrews fits the category of being the Word of God which is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces or penetrates to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and so it creates what is known as in abbreviation DOC differentiations of consciousness. Consciousness is going to be our subject because it's related to conscience, and you'll see that as it comes up. So uh, this word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, creates differentiations of consciousness in the hearers, which leads in turn to accurate thinking about reality, especially the reality that is embodied in Jesus Christ. Again, we must remain aware that the word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. They are one and the same, Ephesians 1.13. And Hebrews is certainly that. It is the gospel or the good news of your salvation. And as Hebrews 1.1-4 is the basis of the exposition of Hebrews. We see this illustrated. In fact, I'm going to give you Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 because it's the basis for the exposition aspect of this whole sermon. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is a singular sentence. It's a periodic sentence. It's a long sentence. Some might even say a run-on sentence if they didn't understand the content or the purpose of the writer. It's called the exordium or the introduction, but it's more than that. It's the basis of all the exposition aspect of Hebrews, and it goes like this. In many parts and in various ways, long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers and the prophets, In these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality, who upholds the universe by his omnipotent decree and carries everything that happens in it and through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective. I will emphasize now this next clause, who has made purification for sins. There's the gospel of our salvation, at least in part, and also this clause, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, as this Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is the basis of the exposition, all the exposition of Hebrews, and so it's kind of a fanning out of this exordium. So Hebrews 2 1 to 4 is the basis of Hebrews' exhortation. There are two aspects to Hebrews it is exhortation, which is the impartation of incentive, both positive and negative, and exposition, which is essentially teaching or explication, explanation. And so Hebrews 2, 1 4, I will read in its totality. On account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we have heard, lest we start drifting away. For if the word spoken by angels was firm and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty, how will we escape? if we neglect such a great salvation so I began by saying the word of truth I entered into the equation of the word of truth with the gospel of our salvation which is right here such a great salvation which very salvation having begun to be articulated through the Lord that's Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh was confirmed by those who heard him God himself testifying at the same time both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. Now, that's also in the a fortiori. If the word spoken by angels was firm, so much so that violations of it, received a just penalty, how much more than is the word spoken by the Lord and confirmed by those who heard him in God's testimony of this great salvation. This great salvation corresponds to the great shepherd of the sheep, which we may continue to look upon or at least take a look at today and maybe even next Wednesday in increment 302. And it also corresponds to the great archpriest who lives everlastingly to make intercession for us to what? To save us to the utmost. And it refers this great salvation, this great archpriest is our Lord Jesus, also known as the great shepherd of the sheep. Wherever you see this word great in Description of Jesus Christ or salvation, we have to at least see an implication of universality. So, great salvation at least connotes universal salvation. The great archpriest connotes at least, or suggests, that he is the archpriest of all humanity of God and all humanity, even as he is the sole mediator between God and mankind, that he's the great shepherd of the sheep, and we've shown this in Psalm 100, means that he is the shepherd not only of the sheep of this particular fold of believers, but of all people, but especially of believers. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Elsewhere in Titus 2.13, we are waiting our what? Great God and Savior. Great God means that he is God of all. Great Savior means that he is Savior of all. Because right in the context, we have Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared, has made its appearance. And that means made its appearance in Jesus Christ. And that means salvation for all men, salvation for all mankind. So when we're dealing with great God, we're dealing with the God of all and who is blessed over all, and we're dealing with the great Savior, we're dealing with the Savior of all. For Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially those who believe, as first Timothy 4 9 and 10 says so this word great is significant such a great salvation we can't afford to ignore the depth of it the height of it the depth and the the breadth and the width of it the universality of it because it bespeaks the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ so such a great salvation in Hebrews two three corresponds to Jesus Christ, the great Archpriest over the household of God. In Hebrews ten twenty one, who lives everlastingly to make intercession for us to save us to the utmost. In Hebrews seven twenty five, also to our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd of the sheep, whom God, the God of peace, brought up from the realm of the dead. Hebrews thirteen twenty is a verse that I'm you're referring to because in a sense it's the climactic verse of Hebrews it's the last second to the last the penultimate verse 1321 being the last in the epistle or the homily per se and from 1322 to 25 we have closing greetings so note this he is the God the God of peace led up from the realm of the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. But note this. It says he has raised up or bled up from the dead, our Lord Jesus. Then I want you to consider this. If you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think they hit on it like no one else did. I didn't see it in any other of 15 or 16 translations I looked at this morning. It says, the Christian Standard Bible says, has this, with the blood, with the blood of the everlasting covenant. I've translated it previously as on account of the blood of the new covenant or the everlasting covenant. And it is translated in many translations as through the blood of the everlasting covenant or in the blood of the everlasting covenant. Rarely, I think Young's literal translation hit it that way, and by the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, if we're to take the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation seriously here, and I'm going to show you that it's a good. There's a good reason to do so, to take it seriously. The resurrected Lord Jesus was led up. The Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, as First Peter five four calls him the great shepherd of the sheep was led up from the dead with the blood of the everlasting covenant everlasting means that it is the definitive covenant not a provisional covenant like the old covenant not a qualitatively inferior covenant or comparatively inferior covenant as the first covenant but the everlasting covenant. So let's hover on this for a second because I think the significance of it is very telling and crucial to our interpretation of Hebrews as a homily. God, the God of peace, that means the God who effected reconciliation in his son. What kind of reconciliation Everlasting and universal reconciliation for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This same God called the God of peace for the gospel of our salvation is also called the gospel of peace in Ephesians six fifteen and 16. The God of peace led up or brought up from the realm of the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, with the blood of the new covenant. I've never considered it seriously up until recently. Many English translations have through the blood or by the blood, and as I said, rarely in the blood. The preposition in question is the dative of N, E-N, and E-N, N, very simply, can mean several things. In fact, Daniel B. Wallace called it the workhorse of the prepositions of the Greek New Testament. And I believe he or someone else I read gives it 36 possible nuances of meaning. So context is very important here to establish that. So I would have to ask the question, as I already have, does with the blood of the new covenant or the everlasting covenant pertain here? Does it belong here? Is it how we should translate N in this case? The preposition in question then is the dative N, which can mean, among other things, one of the meanings that it can mean, one of the premier meanings, in fact, means denoting accompaniment, or association and so it can be translated and is often translated with the Gingrich shorter lexicon makes that clear and that's one of the better lexicons this is obviously the meaning in Hebrews 9.25 if you look down the road just a little bit or up the road up the blood trail as it were the meaning in Hebrews 9.25, the scripture speaks of the archpriest of the Levitical cultus going into the holy place annually with them. The meaning there is clearly with, and it's that same preposition. And Hebrews 9.25, again, the scripture speaks of the archpriest of the Levitical cultus going into the holy place annually. That means on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. N with another's blood, the blood of another, that is, other than the priest. Of course, that means animal blood, the blood of a goat, for example, or the blood of a sacrificial animal. With, then, is the clear favorite of all the dozens of possible meanings of that great workhorse of the New Testament preposition. Group, which is N. We have previously translated this, and I want to be accountable for this because I'm going to be changing it up a little bit or modifying it. We've previously translated this as "on account of the blood of the new or the everlasting covenant." This is speaking, of course, as the new covenant. But given further light and insight, and that's what we're always looking for in God's light, we see light. Psalm 36:9. Given further light and insight, perhaps we should consider the Christian Standard Bible on this, and we've also considered the preposition dia, another common preposition, dia. We've already considered that in previous increments, dia, as meaning also of attendant circumstance with Gingrich again says the same thing and that's found in Hebrews 9.12 which is really the verse that we're hunkering down on recently Hebrews 9.12 9, 12, where it says Messiah Jesus is said to have entered through the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood so notice the contrast in this throughout this whole passage the writer the pastor-teacher uses the law of similarity and dissimilarity. Like the Levitical cultists, Jesus, the archpriest, goes in alone. Unlike the archpriest of the Aaron's sons of Aaron's sons, the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood, unlike them, he doesn't go in once a year, annually, or repetitively year by year, but once, and once and for all. And that is the word ephapax, ephapax, or hapax, both of which are used in Hebrews. We'll, get, we'll be getting down to that again soon, no doubt. And so, in Hebrews nine twelve. not only did, was Jesus unlike the archpriest of the Old Covenant, he did not enter into a earthly tent or an earthly sanctuary he didn't pass through the second curtain of an earthly tent into the earthly holy of holies with blood of another he entered into heaven itself that's remarkable in hebrews 9:24, down the road up the road let's say he says he entered into heaven itself the heavenly tabernacle the heavenly curtain through the second curtain into the holiest place of all With, not animal blood or blood of another, but with blood that is his own. This is obviously the meaning, as I said in Hebrews 9.25, where it specifically says he goes into the holy place. The Old Testament priest, that is, goes into the holy place annually with another's blood. And so in Hebrews 9.12, Messiah Jesus is said to have entered through the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. With his own blood would be fitting in this context. With his own blood. Now that might cut across your modern sensibilities. And it might cut across the previous interpretations you've had as it has with me but that really doesn't matter that much. And so, with surely works here in Hebrews 9.12, that Jesus entered into the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. So, N could be translated as with there or dia can be translated as with there, for two reasons, two contextual reasons, and many more reasons besides that, but two contextual reasons, two reasons because of the immediate context. One, with is the sense in the word or the phrase never without blood. Notice that in Hebrews 9, 7. The archpriest goes in once a year, never without blood. Now, if he'd never, it's never without blood, then it's always what? With blood. That's Hebrews 9.7. And secondly, more importantly, more emphatically, with blood in Hebrews 9.25. So if you shoot the arrow in our archery, our exegetical archery shoot the arrow down the road back to nine seven you have without the blood up to nine twenty five you have with blood and so nine twelve would make perfect sense if the, if the lord jesus christ entered into the holy of holies once and for all in heaven with his own blood as the archpriest alone entered the earthly tent each year that's on yom kippur Yom Kippur is a significant aspect of the reasoning in Hebrews. It's not overarching in Hebrews, but it is important. Yom Kippur, called the Day of Atonement, is an image that is at the forefront of a lot of this teaching. As the archpriest alone entered into the earthly tent each year on Yom Kippur, and never without blood, so Jesus, the great archpriest, entered once and for all into the heavenly tent with his own blood. He did fulfill the type and shadow of going into the earthly tent never without blood by going into the heavenly tent with blood. And so with is something we have to seriously consider. and We'll let that seep in for a second. So the sense of dia seems to be properly with as the sense of n is with in the case of the Aaronic archpriest, Aaronic meaning A-A-R-I-A-A-R-O-N-I-C referring to Aaron and his sons which is a synonym for Levitical because Levi was Aaron's descendant. Whether or not our modern sensibilities hit a roadblock at this image of Jesus going into the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood, whether or not this is a roadblock to our modern sensibilities is not important. What is important is correct interpretation of the word of truth, the good news of our so great salvation that is literally embodied in Jesus' body and blood. Now, we should take seriously without waxing platonic. Now, there's a lot of arguments that have gone on about whether Hebrews has an influence of Plato. And I don't see it. I don't see an influence by platonic thought, by Neoplatonism, by Mid-Platonism, or any other kind of Platonic doctrine here. So without waxing Platonic, we can still take seriously the notion that there may be a heavenly materiality. That's what I'm going to call it for now, a heavenly materiality of which we are unaware, and that's because of terms like a better and abiding possession, Hebrews 10.34 if this is a Roman house church that he's writing to, and it might be, then the writer asks them to remember the days when they were first enlightened by the gospel and by the, the work of Christ on the cross and how they endured a great trial of afflictions right after that and that they actually partook of their confiscation of their property their house it was and they did so with joy and the reason for that is they knew that they had a abiding an abiding possession in the heavens an abiding possession and a better possession than their homes and properties on this earth And so they also had a heavenly Mount Zion or a heavenly Jerusalem. If there is an abiding possession, a real property, a real house and home and property in the heavens, if there really is a heavenly Mount Zion, if there really is... A heavenly city, Jerusalem, then why not heavenly abiding or perpetual heavenly blood? Whichever way we interpret these verses on the blood of Messiah, Hebrews 9:14, or the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10:19, we know that its saving effect is both purgative or purifying and perpetual. Its saving effect is both purgative or purifying and perpetual. It is also complete, complete. And so let's look at Hebrews nine seven. Into the second compartment, that's the holy of holies of the earthly tent. Once a year, only the archpriest goes. Now, this implies that this was ongoing, that the writer is writing to a people who live in the great overlap of the ages, that the end of the Old Covenant, even though it has ended in effect, is still being practiced. The practices of it are still being practiced by those who have not been enlightened about the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his once and for all perpetual heavenly blood offering. And so the archpriest still is going. The priests are still standing daily, in fact it says in Hebrews 10:11, offering sacrifices that can never take away sins. So for the purpose of illustration and symbolic representation to teach a very important principle, he says this. But into the second compartment once a year only the archpriest goes a reference back to Leviticus 16, 17, and Yom Kippur, never without blood, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Now, we've already noted that Jesus fulfills this in a sense of dissimilarity because he does not have to offer a sin offering for himself, even though there is a sense where he himself is delivered from death in Hebrews 5, 7. And we'll get to that perhaps another time. There's a whole lot here. And because he's sinless, he doesn't offer a sin offering on behalf of himself, nor does he offer simply for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Not only sins committed in ignorance, but all sins we know from other passages like 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And that includes intentional as well as unintentional sins or sins committed in ignorance by the people. The people here refers to Israel. Israel, the people of God at that time. Jesus' sacrifice dissimilarly, though he goes in alone, he doesn't go in once a year. He goes in once and for all. He doesn't go without blood. Like the priests, it's never without blood. Unlike the priest, it's not the blood of another, but his own blood. He offers in behalf of himself. In this case, he does not offer sin in behalf of himself. Instead, he becomes sin because he's the sinless one. He becomes sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is, that the world might be made the righteousness of God in him or that the world would be made the righteousness of God in him and has been. So he doesn't do that just for sins committed in ignorance, but all sins, not just the people of Israel, but all people in all places and all times, not our sins only, says John, as a Jewish Christian, but the sins of the whole world. And so again, if he's writing to a people who had suffered years before, 16 or so years before, in the Claudian persecution then they would have experienced the sacking of their homes and the confiscation of their property and their wealth. They would have suffered economic disaster and they would have suffered social ostracism and religious persecution, all of which they took with joy because they knew they had a better and abiding property elsewhere in the heavens. So this, again, begs the question, is there a kind of materiality in the heavenly world, in future world. It's not just a vague, platonic world of ideals, but real, real materiality. So it should be noted here in in Hebrews 9, 7, that the archpriest enters the holy of holies of the earthly tent, or tabernacle, with the blood only after having sacrificed animals after having offered animals in sacrifice. The archpriest performs two separate acts then, the shedding of blood by sacrificing the animal or animals and the sprinkling of blood in the Holy of Holies. Likewise, and this is similar and dissimilar, Jesus was offered and offered himself on the cross and there, blood came forth from his side. And then, after being brought up from the realm of the dead with the blood of the everlasting covenant, if we go with, with, in Hebrews thirteen 20, he ascended to heaven and entered into the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood, which we must call perpetual blood. We must call incorruptible blood. We must call heavenly blood which he offered as the means of the complete and perpetual purification of the consciousness of sins for his people, which we know is ultimately all people. So Hebrews 9 continues as I'm sweeping over this again, doing a sweep of this. In 9.12 again, he, Messiah Jesus, our great archpriest, who is foreshadowed by Melchizedek, a priest forever, that's my bracketed commentary, entered once and for all through the sanctuary, not by the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Not with the blood of bulls and calves, or goats and calves, rather, but with his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. We said this on increment 299 on Sunday. There are two acts of the divine Son of Man here, the one who came to seek and save that which was lost, that which is lost. And the two acts are this. He has obtained eternal redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins, And that happened in his earthly offering on the cross, on earth. But then he, that's how he secures objective purification of sins. The objective purification of all sins, in fact. But then he enters into the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood to make a heavenly offering. This time for the subjective feeling of guilt. To purge that away, the objective cleansing of the consciousness of sins, which he purifies by the offering of his blood in heaven. There's two divine acts then the earthly act of endurance of the cross, and then the heavenly act of having ascended, goes into the holiest place of all, presents the blood, his own perpetual heavenly blood into heaven itself as we're going to learn from Hebrews 9.24 where he appears continually and perpetually in the face of God before the face of the Father with his blood. Now, I'm not going to try to make more rational that image to line up with modern sensibilities when Paul was caught up into paradise in the third heaven he saw things that were unspeakable and that means two things really unlawful to speak about because it would be highly misunderstood by people down here on earth and secondly he couldn't even articulate it anyways So the mysteries of heaven are kept secret because they can't even be articulated by human speech. And so there are things in heaven that we have no comprehension about. And so I have no problem saying that the heavenly blood of Messiah is there. Otherwise, why does the scripture say, you have come to Mount Zion? Obviously, that's not earthly Mount Zion. That is a heavenly Mount Zion. It's not just merely symbolic. It's real. You have come to the city of the living God, a city, not a pretend city, not a metaphorical city, not a platonically ideal reality or ideality, but a reality. You have come to God, the judge of all, not a legendary person, a real person. You have come to the spirits, or that means the total being, of the righteous, made perfect or made complete. You have come to an innumerable company of angels, myriads of angels, literally, in festal gathering, not legendary creatures, but true intermediate beings between God and man. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant the mediator of the new covenant you have come to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling and to the blood of sprinkling the blood that sprinkles unto purification that means the heavenly perpetual blood that sprinkles to purification of the consciousness of sins is that real Is it symbolic? Is it merely figurative? Is it merely metaphorical? Or is there a heavenly materiality we have no idea about? And do we take this at face value? I do. The blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood on the ground spoke to God. Your brother's blood speaks to me, the father said. The Lord said to Cain. And the blood of the new covenant, the sprinkled blood, speaks better things than that of Abel. It speaks of a decisive purgation of the consciousness of sins. And that's why it's important. So again, let's look at it. He, Messiah Jesus, entered once and for all, not once a year, through the sanctuary, not the earthly, but the heavenly, not by the blood of bulls and goats, or not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Act one, he obtains eternal redemption on earth. Act two, he presents the offering of his perpetual heavenly blood in the heavens. Act one, purifies sins objectively, act two, purifies the consciousness of sins and the very feelings of guilt perpetually and completely. So how much more will the blood of Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God? That's completely and perpetually. Purify, our consciousness. That's the heavenly perpetual blood. The offering that he's speaking of here is arguably the heavenly offering. When he went to heaven and offered himself to the Father as having obtained eternal redemption already, he therefore is offered by the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished. That's the Lamb of God how much more shall the blood of Messiah, that's the perpetual heavenly blood, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, completely and perpetually purify our conscience or our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God meaning as the new priests of the new covenant. Service to the living God and true worship is only complete when our conscience is completely cleansed, not partially cleansed. So since I-299, increment 299, we've been concerned with a DOC, a differentiation of consciousness that arises from a consideration of a distinction between Jesus' earthly and Jesus' heavenly offerings. By his earthly offering, his endurance of the cross, Hebrews 12, 2, he was offered to objectively make purification of sins. By his heavenly offering, that is, his self-offering to God in heaven with his own blood, he purifies the consciousness of the worshipers of God So we have distinguished a heavenly perpetual offering of his blood in heaven from a once and for all obtaining of eternal redemption on earth, that is, on the cross, where he tasted death for everyone. So what we have not considered before, therefore but which I have now seen clearly or am seeing clearly thanks to Joshua D.A. Bloor's doctoral thesis, which he completed as recently as during the recent pandemic and published only in our year 2023. Thanks to his doctoral thesis, I'm getting a little boost here, is that the blood of animals offered under the first covenant and through the, Levit- the Levitical cultists did, in fact, purify not only the body or the flesh, sarks, but the consciousness of the people of Israel, their conscience. Though that purification of the consciousness of sins was not complete. That's the point. Hebrews 9.14, which says again, how much more shall the blood of Christ, the Messiah, purify our conscience? How much more means or suggests that the offerings offered under the old covenant rules and regulations did, in fact, purify the conscience. The flesh there, speaking of the human being on earth, but how much more? Meaning, yes, those old offerings did purify the conscience or the consciousness of sins. The problem isn't that they didn't purify the conscience. The problem is they didn't purify it perpetually, and they didn't purify it completely. That required a better sacrifice. That required the sacrifice of Messiah himself. That required the purifying blood, the heavenly blood of Messiah. That's the point. Significantly and more than once, we've considered that Hebrews, like 56 of the Psalms of the Septuagint, is about completion. Estotelos. This is indicated by the use of the words throughout the sermon that are from the tel semantic group, T-E-L. That's having to do with completion. The Greek word tel, the semantic group, for example, teleao is used, and you'll see this in print, in Hebrews 2.10, five nine. 7:19, 7:28, 9:9, 14, 10:14, 11:40, and 12:23. So throughout, so throughout the homily, this tell group is used, and elsewhere also. Along with that, f hapax for once and for all, or hapax once and once only. It is not that the blood. Here's the point of today's message of this 300 of the 300. I 300. It's not that the blood of the sacrifices offered in the Aaronic order could not purify the conscience or consciousness but that the purification or purgation was not complete. Hebrews 9.14 does indicate that there was a purification of the consciousness of sins and a purification of the body because it says how much more shall the blood of Christ purify your consciousness of sins from dead works. Notice I'm Translating conscience or sunnidesis there as consciousness. How much more? Paso malam. We began with it. We'll end with it. Paso malam. Means that the blood of Christ completely purges and perpetually purges the consciousness of sins from dead works to liberate the purged ones to serve the living God. Now speaking of the complete purification of the consciousness of sins... Let's back up then slightly to pick up the immediate context of Hebrews 9.14, the preceding context, and therefore the logic of leading up to it, up to this 9.14. So I'm going to close by saying that by just simply reading with bracketed commentary, limited bracketed commentary, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 through 14. By this, the Holy Spirit is making clear that not yet disclosed is the road to the Holy of Holies while the first tent has standing. This is a symbolic representation, parabole, for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented. See, at his present Time of the presence, the present time of the readers of Hebrews, the initial recipients of this epistle, these Old Testament offerings were still going on. It was the overlap of the ages. Gifts and offerings, both gifts and offerings, are still being presented, which are not able, notice this, to completely cleanse. It doesn't say not able to cleanse. It says, not able to completely cleanse. And therefore, teleao is used. T-E-L-E-I-O-O. Teleao. Omicron O followed by Omega O. Teleao. We just gave you several references of that verb. Not able to completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings imposed until the time of the correction. The time of the correction is now, it's the time of the coming of Christ, it's the time of both his earthly and heavenly offerings, but it also has to do with the restoration of all things. We've hit that on another occasion. The paragraph that then hits the dead center, or make it the living center of this homily, starts in verse 11. We've dealt with it many times. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming, with the greater and more complete tent, not made, notice that, the greater and more complete tent or tabernacle, not made by human hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, not by the blood of bulls and goats or with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body, and it did, and also here it's along with the incomplete cleansing of the consciousness, then how much more, that means how much more completely, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, that means in heaven and with his blood of the new covenant, purify our conscience or our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God, meaning we can serve the living God effectively. This has to do with living in the newness of life and serving in the newness of the spirit as the new priests of the new covenant. So what we have here really is a continuation of a figure of speech that runs throughout this whole epistle or letter or homily, oxasis. And that's a comparison in which it says, well, Jesus is better than Moses. Not that Moses was bad. Moses was great, but Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses. Jesus is greater than Aaron, not that Aaron was bad and Jesus is good, but Aaron was great, but Jesus is even greater than Aaron. Now we're in the realm of the sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests. They were great in one sense because they cleansed in a measure, but Jesus Christ is greater and his sacrifice cleanses completely and perpetually. Auxasis continues. So Father, we thank you for the Opportunity that we have to make a distinction that presents a differentiation of consciousness and helps us to think of reality in a more precise manner and helps us more to be occupied with our Savior Jesus Christ and with his two acts that were done on our behalf by him. One is a once-and-for-all act of his earthly sacrifice, The other is a perpetual act, an act that has perpetual importance and perpetual saving significance, which is the offering of his heavenly blood in the heavens, where he now appears in the face of God, before the face of God, on our behalf. And we thank you, and Father, oh, how we appreciate and how we are grateful and how we worship you and thank you for your kindness and your grace, recognizing that you are the majesty and that your majesty is the maximal expression of your mercy, your saving mercy, and your free grace in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we praise you. Amen.